difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie that we podcast devoted to a classic film the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with Scott Tobias and Tasha Robinson. Once again, we are joined by Allison Wilmore, while our regular co-host Genevieve Kosky blazes a bloody trail through Japan and Europe. Allison, thanks for stepping in. I just want to warn you, everyone around me, you know, everyone I come in contact with dies. <laughs> that's that's a that's a big that's a good warning to have. It's a, a big warning to throw at us. At the top of our second segment together, uh, you couldn't have brought that up earlier. You know, uh, yeah, I just, you know, it's hard to maintain friendships when that's just the truth about you. So sometimes I like to hold on to it for a while just to get some socialization. <laughs> well, we got to complete this episode at least for just for our listeners' sake. We got to deliver what we promised. I don't know. I don't know. Which is I'm, a John feeling... Wick 4 pairing. I'm feeling a little die right now. I, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go monologue a lot about a past relationship um, and then succumb quietly in my bed. Oh, anyway, last week we discussed Point Blank, the film to which Tasha is alluding. It's a classic revenge movie starring Lee Marvin and directed by John Borman. Uh, years ago, director Jim Jarmusch formed a not-so-secret secret society called The Sons of Lee Marvin, whose only membership requirement was that his members bear a physical resemblance to the actor. Keanu Reeves looks nothing like Marvin, but for our purposes, he's, let's, we're going to treat Reeves and John Wick Chapter 4 as kind of spiritual heirs to Lee Marvin and, and Point Blank. Like Point Blank, the John Wick films in general are the stories of, uh, of a skilled killer working his way to the top of an underworld organization on a mission of revenge. But across those four entries of the John Wick mythology, Wickthology maybe, has expanded and Wick's body count has mounted in response. Chapter four finds Wick trying to settle things with a high table, a kind of global crime boss council of elders, but he quickly discovers taking out the organization's top member only deepens his troubles. As a bounty placed on his head by the cruel preening Marquis Vincent de Gramont, played by Bill Skarsgård, grows, Wick's antagonists multiply to include Kane, played by Donnie Yen, a blind assassin Wick considers a friend, and Mr. Nobody, played by Shamir Anderson, a confident hitman who's happy to drive at the price before taking Wick out. Will Wick prevail? We already know the answer, and we'll talk it over after the break. Saying goodbyes? Saying hello. You think your wife can hear you? No. Then why bother? Maybe I'm wrong. You're going to die. Maybe not. Goodbye to you, my trusted friend. A new day is dawning. New ideas. No rules, no management. We've known each other since we were nine Who is this? The Marquis de Gramont. Challenge him to single combat. Win or lose, it's a way out. I don't sit at the table. Your family does. Please pray for me. I was the black sheep of the family. Man has to look his best when it's time to get married or buried. I'm going to need a gun. All right, John Wick, Chapter Four. I was looking forward to slash dreading this film based on its running time because it is very very long. But I uh, I had I had a blast. Uh, what about everybody else? I had a good time. I I did find it bloated. Like it felt too long for me at parts. And I had there are times where I I feel like the least interesting parts of these movies are when he is just killing a bunch of henchmen the same way, mm. which felt like it happened more this time around. A lot of the kind of like um, grappling and then headshots uh, <laughs> to a bunch of kind of anonymous, anonymous dudes where I'm like, I want him to kill people I know. <laughs> <laughs> this is too impersonal. <laughs> That's, yeah, exactly. I want, I want this. I want meaningful personalized violence. But that said, I, it's so enjoyable. It's so just committed to be decadent and entertaining. And it had uh, an unexpected and incredible pratfall towards the end. Mm -hmm. That uh, was my favorite part of the movie. So I definitely had a good time. 
I'm with you on some of that. Uh, the part about finding it really tedious when he kills a whole bunch of dudes in the exact same way. I I definitely could have done with a good half an hour to 45 minutes less of this movie. I just, I remember the impact that the style of the first John Wick movie had when so much of its world was a mystery and a really compelling mystery. And as these movies have slathered on like the detail and the incident and have kind of tried to to rev up in scale and scope and bring in all the stuff, I find them more interesting when nobody's fighting. You know, the the big sequence towards the end that's kind of the final conflict is maybe the most interesting thing in the movie, as far as I'm concerned. Whereas the fight where he's he's swarmed by about 800 people who are all wearing completely face-covering masks, and there's literally nothing to tell them apart except how big or heavy their particular weapon is. And he has to like just work his way through, you know, a thousand anonymous dudes. And very little of it, there's there's always, there's a moment where he picks up a new weapon and the whole audience goes, ooh, uh, and, and kind of giggles because they know they're going to see something new. And then you see him kill like 50 people with that weapon and uh, suddenly it's not as much fun anymore. And I just, there were, there were times during this movie where I was just like, okay, he's been hit by a car three times in this scene alone and has just like rolled with it, got up and, and kept on fighting. Does anything mean anything in this movie? Like, is is there any amount of damage? Is there any amount of, of effect that means anything? Is there any amount of killing that means anything? I found it very draining. And I got to a point of thinking of it just as a very intellectual exercise in how do you make yet another combat sequence something that we haven't seen before on screen? So like the Arc de Triomphe sequence uh, with all of the cars had a lot of like creative staging in it. And, and that was fun. And the sequences where he actually talks to people or at least is talked to by people or the sequences where he's not on screen and in McShane is just being, you know, the, the coldest devil out there. I found all of that just so much more entertaining than, than some of the fight sequences here. Hmm. Hmm. This movie, I, I, mean, I, I, I enjoyed this as much as any of them since the first John Wick, and I, I think I think it has a tremendous closing speed, which is really makes up for a lot of the bloat. Like I really think think a lot of the things I like, a lot of the, a lot of the stronger action sequences are reserved for the end of the movie. That's when it really kicks, and I think that's when it really needs to kick. I I, I kind of did feel the bloat a little bit more towards the beginning it felt a little bit more of the same and 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 you and, and you know that kind of tedium was setting in already with the second film especially and the, the third one i liked actually a little more than the second but it, but it was there too and it, it seemed to be defying so much what it was when it started which was kind of like okay let's it was so refreshing to see the original John Wick because it was like, okay, we're, we're seeing a stunt person's movie. We're getting a real physical action, real visceral action, a very simple revenge plot that doesn't get, that it's not going to get too as soupy as it ends up getting as the mythology is sort of built up. And now, you know, we get to this movie and uh, there's just, a, it, you know, the, there's more CGI. It's got a lot of bloat. It's got a lot of, th you know, there's a lot of things that it shouldn't work as well as it does, but it kind of does, you know. And, and I think the fact that it has this, this uh, you know, some finality to it, you know, gives it a little bit of narrative juice uh, that might have been missing from the middle two movies, which were just kind of like, okay, here's more of the same, and then it's going to lead to more of the same. At least this kind of had an end, and it has an excellent villain. I think Bill Skarsgård is is tremendous fun, and um, you know, I think a lot of the characters in the movie really, again, sort of pop. So this this movie worked for me pretty damn well. I mean, as you said, this, this was the motivation behind the first film was like, let's let's do this right. These are you know people who know stunts, doing it right. And I really appreciate that too. Like, sort of like, let's actually stage fight scenes where you can see the movement, you know? And, and that's something as simple as that made a big difference. But I feel like, you know, they've just gotten more stylistically ambitious since then. And, uh, you know, there, there's some really just great images in this too. Like, it just, the, I was like, wow, you're really, you're really going for it with this as well. Uh, I don't remember, tell me, correct me if I'm wrong, but were the other ones as, I don't remember them being as steeped in movie references as this one, which includes, you know, 
you know, little homages from Lawrence Arabia <laughs> to, to, to the Warriors. To a radio station called WUSIA. Yes, right? yes, exactly. Which, which features a, a never seen black woman who you're only looking at her mouth as she literally starts her, her show with like, hello, boppers. I mean, that's just it's it's really, really literal in a way that I enjoyed. I know I don't remember the the previous ones having quite so much movie homage, but honestly, past the first one, these movies haven't stuck with me a whole lot. Maybe mostly just because there's so much, so much that doesn't matter, you know, so much uh, detail being piled up that in the end is just kind of irrelevant. I, I think it's really interesting in this one how much Keanu gets left out, like left behind, how much time this film spends away from him. And apart from the whole business with his family, it almost seems like it's not terribly interested in him and what's going on with him, even when it's with him, apart from the fight sequences. It's like this story has moved beyond him. It's much more about the world and the effect that he's having on the world than him himself. And when we're with him, he just seems tired and exasperated and and ready for it to be over. And I, I don't mean that to sound like an accident or like I'm saying it in a bad way, like you might say, you know, uh, certain people have checked out of their their roles. It seems like something that's just very much where the character has has reached is a point of apathy and exhaustion. But what that means is whenever we see John Wick on screen and he isn't fighting, he's just like thousand yard stare answering people's questions in monosyllables, being pushed around by other people's decisions. And it's it's an interesting place to have gotten with the guy whose, whose name is literally the title of the movie. Well, I think also it's funny how many people essentially ask him, like, do you know where this movie is going? <laughs> like, like multiple people are like, have you thought about how this ends? Like, and, and I think, you know, you do feel that the movie is acknowledging the fact that there is no clear out here aside from the one that it it kind of ends on that feels inevitable. You know, these movies are also haunted by death. But uh, I, I think also for all of this is like a sprawling multinational movie that involves, you know, all of this mythology. It is also a movie where it's it's out of space, you know, it's out of it's out of uh, places to go. Uh, he can keep killing everyone, but as everyone assures him, um, that will never get him out of trouble. Like, there is no world in which he really escapes, you know, this this kind of alternate reality nether world. There's just no way out. So some of the, the there's nowhere to go, ultimately. And, and maybe that, for me, is where a bit of that bloat comes in, uh, you know, or, or like it feels like it's fed narratively, where you're just like... There is no kind of like strong sense of narrative propulsion uh, guiding you through this movie. It just is kind of jumping from very cool set piece to very cool set piece uh, in different countries. I think that's why I like the end of it so much because I because I think you could say that the moment where when it's when uh, the Marquis like he's not even going to make it to the duel, you know, and, and we know that he has this space he needs to get to before sunset that becomes or sunrise i should say that becomes the engine of the of the movie that that becomes kind of a mini movie in itself it's thrilling because it's like okay now now we have a direction now we have you know something that's that's moving this movie forward other than just like this free-floating you know the revenge quest that never ends like there's an end to this like 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 if he gets to where he's going by the old rules you know he's going to be able to to have some sort of a, a satisfying duel though even that's a little bit confusing because he can't he, he has to fight fight uh kane first and i don't know it's but so satisfying oh my god <laughs> the, the fact that this the, the fact that everyone seems to realize uh in the audience and around him that wick has not fired uh a bullet except for the marquee who's just ready to ready to roll and man that was that was exciting to see him get uh popped there there is a degree to which just getting to the duel, he's like already won. The The movie has already climaxed in its way. And we kind of know how some of it is going to come out from there. Like we don't necessarily have a sense of what the mechanics are going to be. But a lot by the time he gets there, a lot of the decisions have been made. And 
there's a sense that the movie can slow down to the degree that it does at that point, you know, can get a little more contemplative and thoughtful and can literally reduce one of its players to an, an audience member sitting by on the sidelines, just waiting to see what happens because the biggest action of the film has already taken place. He, he won just by getting to where he needed to be. He proved something and he won. And I, I like that dynamic of it. And I also liked the Mr. Nobody character a fair yes, bit. Yeah. Like an yeah. awful lot of the uh, opponents, the bigger opponents that he faces throughout the course of this series stand out for a while and then disappear. I would I would have a hard time pointing you at many of them past uh, Alfie Allen in the first movie. But this guy, like from the beginning, there was just something about him that stood out and that made me just start thinking if if part of the mechanics of this movie is like he's the second uh, big bad on the way up to first Donnie Yen and, and then the marquee, I'm going to be pretty tuned out of this movie. Like, I, I don't want to see this guy die. It has nothing to do with a dog. I'm not that sentimental about movie dogs, especially CG movie dogs. It's just that he has a personality and he has like desires and he has a way of expressing himself that's interesting. And I'm not sure what he's doing in this film except setting up a spinoff because everything about his appearance and his edit in this movie says I'm getting the spinoff cut. But I still enjoyed him. Every every moment he was on screen, I was just like, yeah, more more of this guy. Let's see where this story's going. It was really good to see Donnie Yen with such a big role in an American film as well. Yeah, he's so fun in this movie. Mm-hmm. He's having such a good time. Um, he's just kind of uh, sassy, <laughs> which I appreciate it for, you know, an, another character from, from this guy's past who's getting dragged out uh, unwillingly. Uh, you know, him eating the noodles during a big, that big uh, Osaka set piece. It was, was delightful. Him, yeah, just seeming kind of like fed up of, of everything. Uh, he's, you know, he himself, like, you know, speaking of movie references, like he himself is like an homage, right? Like a living homage to uh, a whole kind of history of, of Hong Kong action cinema. But he's, yeah, it's, he, he's just, he's so fun on screen here. And then to go back to Mr. Nobody for a second also. I, I, I enjoyed Mr. Nobody as well, but I did keep waiting for another beat. And I think the fact that there wasn't some kind of final cap to that story, yeah, also made me think about all of the spinoffs, which isn't something I love about, you know, like for all that this movie offers, at least an illusion of closure uh, to this, this, you know, ever expanding story. It also offers an array of characters, all of whom seem like their potential uh, material, you know, to be followed in, in future TV series and spinoff movies, et cetera, et cetera. And I know that this is just how we make big movies now, uh, for better and worse. Mostly it's worse. Worse. Maybe worse. It's worse. <laughs> no, yeah, you're right. I um, hate thinking about movies that way. I'm just like, oh, this this, this weird subplot exists because it's going to set something up later. Or be right, a, like, just... why does it not go? And then you're like, oh, it's going because, like, yeah, later we're going to we're going to get a whole other movie. There's not. It's not going to get closed off in this movie. And it's just it's unfair to the character. It's it's unfair to the story arc that he seems to be telling, and it's unfair the, to the audience that they're drawn into this person's story which this film isn't all that interested in ultimately it's it's just interested in saying well you know next time this guy will get his due next time right. and it's yeah right like you like this guy right we'll see <laughs> it, would have, it would have taken so little effort to give him a final beat as opposed to just having him like i don't know literally be forgotten off screen it seemed like yeah i mean that's one thing you know I have really mixed feelings about the whole Baroque world that John Wick has kind of developed on the fly as these movies have kept going on, in part because that first movie feels like a kind of never resolvable metaphor in some ways, maybe for, uh, to bring us back to the conversation from last time, uh, a guy, you know, like it feels like a metaphor for work in some ways. It's it's a guy who is like, 
I'm done with the city life. I'm moving out to the burbs in New Jersey. <laughs> I'm like, you know, this like terrible work-life balance I've had in the city. I'm, I'm getting rid of it. I'm going to have a, like a better life out here and then gets drawn back in. You know, uh, I, I, I think a lot of, I, I don't mind the fact that I think it, it's impossible to really, the, the, the movies clearly keep making up more of these rules at institutions as they go along because it's, it mostly is an excuse for like very stylish, uh, you know, settings and uh, and rituals. But I don't know that I feel all that excited about the the idea that these movies have now at this point like served up this universe in which we're just like now little stories can be set. You know, I kind of liked that you were seeing just little parts of what's supposed to be this like incredibly complex world just through John Wick's story. I don't know that I really want it to be fully built out, you know? I don't know that I think it makes sense to be fully built out. The more we see of it, the less it kind of comes together for me. Uh, that I think, I think, again, it just, I mean, it's the ultimate in mission drift of just like the first film was refreshing because it wasn't doing all that stuff. It wasn't like this world building exercise. It was just like uh, this assassin was taking revenge for his dog and getting killed. It's like, it was so. You know, there was just a, a refreshing simplicity to it. There was a there was a power to the to the action, the way it was staged, uh, kind of an old school f- feeling to it. You know, it was it felt like um, you know, connected to the Hong Kong uh, uh, action films that were kind of surging in the you know in the in the early in the what early to mid nineties or something. And so, what when but then you when you add all of this world building and mythology and architecture, it just it feels well bloated and also just like oh, just like everything else, and you hate to see it, for sure. Yeah, we don't like to see it that much. I think I think in, in this case, it, it works well enough. It and ends, I think though. It has to end. Like the, the fact that it ends is so important. <laughs> like it actually that that we that we get the end of John Wick like that. That is, uh, I think, extremely important to the film's success is just having yeah, a... I, but I is it the end, though? I don't believe for <laughs> a second in the, the end of John Wick. I, everything about the way it's staged and shot and presented, I don't believe oh, in no. it. I would like to think that this is a, this is a goodbye to this character just because if we're if we are going to continue this uh, continuum ad infinitum, it would be nice to move on to a different story like the the endless attempts to get out from under the table have become a little repetitive. So I'm I'm ready for something else. I don't know what that is within this world where there do not seem to be any civilians whatsoever. The the world is just made up entirely of assassins and people who employ assassins. <laughs> well I have some good news for you, Tasha, because filming right now, I believe, is a film called Ballerina starring Anna de Armas, uh, which is set within the John Wick universe. So that's something different while also remaining the same, right? I enjoyed Atomic Blonde. That was kind of it's not in the Wick universe, but it's like fun. that was that was I thought that did what this what this sort of thing uh, does quite well. And and Nobody, which was written by the writer oh, of right. the first three John Wick films, but not this one. I don't know what the story is there. Wow. But you'd have to you'd have uh, to have something a different title though, right? Didn't isn't that the the, the Odenkirk thing? Wasn't that was that no was that was that, that Nobody was or what was, no? What was it? No, I was gonna say he he wrote no Nobody. Yeah, that's what is, he's saying. Written by. You're oh, getting, I, I have a question for you, Scott, though. Okay, hit me. Who's, who's on first? <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, you know who else that fooled? Uh, the uh, the uh, uh, the Cyclops when Odysseus said he was nobody. Um, but that's a deep reference here to the Odyssey. I'm no, sorry. but I like it. It's it. my second Homer reference this podcast. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm your, kind of proud of myself right now. Your classics major is showing. Well, I, with that, once, once we start talking about Homer, maybe it's time to move on to the next part of this podcast, which is when we talk about uh, this film in relation to Point Blank. We'll talk it over after the break. You come here thinking there is a way out of this world for you, Mr. Wick. There is not. The Centre Pompidou. Sacre Coeur. Sacre Coeur. Weapons. If you win, the table will honor its word. You will have your freedom. But you won't take it. Blades. 
pistols. Now it's time for connections. We bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. What could these two films about killers on a quest for revenge possibly have in common? Uh, I guess one thing to start with is something that's kind of at the key at both of us is, is this kind of code of honor. We have uh, Walker being horribly offended by uh, the violation of this code, and we have a very elaborate code of honor in the John Wick films. What, what relation do they bear to each other? Well, I think with Walker, I mean, it's almost as though he's trying to parse how his feelings of being, his code of honor being violated fit in with, you know, this new world that maybe has moved on to something else. Mm -hmm. And I do think that maybe that fits together a bit with the John Wick world, which always implies that there was like a more civil, a civil time of assassins um, that like, you know, is always being lost, right? The old ways, this is how we used to do things in the old times. And, you know, the, like, order is always threatening to be dissolved a bit, you know, maybe in part by uh, John Wick running around and killing a bunch of people, uh, you know, at the top of the chain. So certainly I think there there's a bit there of, of a feeling of there are rules, but also maybe the world doesn't follow the rules as much as our hero uh, has always assumed. I think it's interesting that the implication is like, we're all bound by the old rules and the old ways when people were somehow better, when everything was somehow classier. And yet in point blank, you've kind of got the idea of like, no, there are new rules now. And the new rules are better and more civilized and classier. And you're violating the new rules by behaving like an old school, old class guy. Uh, just, just sort of a perspective difference, I think. In, in terms of, like, uh, who's being most inconvenienced, I guess, by the, the behavior of the unstoppable revenge engine, uh, the, the people who have changed things and like it in the, the new order, or the people who have had change foisted on them and don't like it in the new order? I probably skip past the most obvious thing these have in common, which is their two different revenge stories. We talked a little bit about where Point Blank fell on the scale of, of, of revenge films um you know this is a different sort of revenge with a much more you know elaborate and complicated type of revenge in some ways even though it both eventually involve our heroes heroes quote unquote firing their way through through many many throngs of of, of opponents i mean are, are they fundamentally telling the same story Oh, I don't think so. I think the John Wick movies have, uh, again, with the mission drift, like, I, th I think they left revenge movie behind a long time mm -hmm. ago. Okay. You know, this isn't a movie about a guy trying to get to somebody who has done him personal harm anymore. It's about the organization. It's about the, the machine that he lives within. It's about trying to change the rules of the world that he lives in and just being told over and over and over like that's that's not how things work like you're part of a system and you can't not be part of the system until he points to a rule that says he could not be part of the system and then everybody's like oh right yeah that the thing that we all know about but that nobody's ever brought up before those rules seem like explicable to you though in these movies i don't i kind of don't get it like like he's trying to kind of he just wants peace right he wants to be out and that's that's one thing that they won't that is not allowed but why i mean they, they eventually kind of invent something in this movie which i guess gets coded as something as the the, the old ways that is gonna allow him to finally be free but the route to get there before is so murky and you know he just he does whatever he can anyway and just it never gets the satisfaction that he that he wants well, I mean, the way these movies are both the same story and the way so many uh, either revenge style stories or betraying our superstar and then he has to uh, like kill his way back through the organization that betrayed him stories go. I guess that's just another form of revenge story. But, you know, movies like Hitman, like that, that kind of model also just follow this this track very well. The thing that they all have in common is there is a very easy way to stop the mayhem and stop the bodies piling up. And that is to give the dude what he wants, which in both cases in these movies would be really pretty simple. Take the price off John Wick's head and stop sending armies of goons to die. Give the man his $93,000, which you consider peanuts for your organization. It's not hard. But in both cases, you have these very prideful organizations and very proud men at the top of them that just can't admit 
defeat that just can't back down. And you can say that that's because, you know, they would be setting a precedent that they would be letting people know that there's a way to get to them. And maybe, maybe the honor among thieves would be broken. Maybe the rules would be broken. Maybe everybody would try this if one person got away with it. But in both cases here, you have one person just doing immeasurable harm because nobody can say, think about the end of THX 1138, where the machine basically says, all right, we've reached the price tag for this particular disaster where it is not worth it anymore. Let's stop. Nobody in either of these movies is capable of doing that. <laughs> Tasha, this reminds me of a the- of a another connection that I came up with. That you had ext- something very funny to say about, so I'm gonna let you. I can find it here if you uh, don't have it. But but the connection was sort of like, why are men like this? <laughs> and then, and what, what was your response to that? Do you do you uh, have it at hand? If you want to pull it up in Slack, be my guest. I would feel okay. pretty silly reading my own my own gag out of Slack. But uh, okay. if, if if it makes you happy, you can you can read it. <laughs> Tasha Tasha says, I tell you, a man will kill his way up the ladder of a shadowy criminal organization, ignoring all past emotional ties and even the fundamental linearity of time before he'll go to therapy. But, <laughs> so I thought that was pretty good, Tasha. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, that part of it was really is really, really something because, uh, you know, to kind of continue these grudges, to continue this extraordinary violence over conflicts that, that are seem easily resolvable and that would be just to resolve i think it's just the, the nature of of men in a way yeah i mean that's we should you know it's a it's a it's, it's humorously phrased there but, but these are men stories and like, and like you know we john wick's wife we who we brent you know we glimpsed very briefly here in, in in flashback of it but hasn't you know was was gone before the first film even began we we lose uh we lose walker's wife fairly early on these these are in some ways are stories of what happens with you know when men become un- untethered from women i do think that one thing that revenge in both of these movies has in common is that it's really hard to know what these men really want you know throughout we talked about how uh walker in in point blank is you know deliberately made a bit opaque in terms of like he he wants his money he says even though people keep asking like what would you even do with this money like do you really want this and i think i will admit that like when i when john mcfore started i was like i have no recollection of like what he's trying to do at this point (laughs) like i don't know what he wants you know uh like you know, he turns to the camera and and Lawrence Fishburne is like, Are you ready, John? He's like, I'm ready. <laughs> no idea. And I'm like, ready? What for what? Like, <laughs> what are you doing at this point? I don't remember. And then he goes off and kills the elder who is, you know, no longer played by Saeed Tagmoli. He's like played by a random person, presumably because um they couldn't get the same actor, and kills him. And I'm just like, I don't even remember what that guy's deal is <laughs> anymore. Uh, but I, I think it, at this point, it is difficult to kind of articulate and kind of incidental maybe to articulate like what john wick's uh motivations are. you know he he says i think of the, the third movie he wants to stay alive to like maintain the memory of his wife like uh which he feels maybe a little thin at this point for as he places a trail of murdering you know hundreds of people <laughs> throughout multiple continents what about all their wives and the memories of their wives uh, <laughs> oh, but, uh, oh wow you know i think yeah but i think i think that like uh you know yeah in in by john wick four for uh, i think the idea of like what he's really what he wants has definitely gotten a little lost. It's a little lost in the sauce there uh, and, and maybe not that important. Well, I find that really, really interesting given how how much all of y'all bagged on me for not seeing the righteousness of uh, Walker wanting his $93,000 that was never his to begin with, that he was stealing off murdered men. Uh, here, I, I mean, I find John Wick's desire to not be killed by assholes who will then win pretty relatable. I also would prefer not to be murdered by assholes. And then I would prefer for them to not, you know, dance on my grave. His desire to be the last man standing just so they don't win uh, it seems like a, a reasonable enough goal to me. But he's lined on to this. Like, he wanted this whole thing. Plus, the movie starts with him killing the, like, the elder whatever the elder's deal is like you know like they could have just skipped that if it was the whole movie was about him not wanting to be hunted and chased anymore 
which is, I think, a very reasonable thing to to want. But they they specifically start the movie by dredging up, you know, this character so that he could ride in the desert on the horse and then find him. And so that character could offer a slightly tangled explanation for why he was no longer played by the same actor. Uh, and, and then get and then die immediately. You know, like I think they're like the movie attempts to give to make this a kind of active war, not just you know, and I think yeah, I, I do think a lot of it is just because this movie maybe more so than the last two for me just felt like it's the the revenge plot as much as it was there is just kind of an excuse to get you from one place to another until the end when you finally seem to it's the movie knows where it's going so here's an idea what if john wick died in that original mugging and like the past roughly decade or so has just been a really extended fantasy that he's been having like as he's bleeding out on his floor next to his puppy like is there is there a reading where it makes sense for all of this to just be a ghost no never mind no it kind never. of actually you know what yeah, tasha's it kind of does you, you kind of tracks actually yeah <laughs> makes as much sense as anything maybe maybe uh Death Dream is just a universal reading you can give for almost every movie. Actually, I think though, if 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 they were revealed in John Wick Five that it has been all all a dream, I, I think there'd be a lot of a lot of upset uh, viewers at that point. Well, it's, John Wick Five is actually just a movie about a guy living in New Jersey um, <laughs> having had like a prolonged hallucination. Is that kind of what the last Matrix movie was? Assassin. Though, I mean, is, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, it's a reverse Matrix. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, so I, I mean, does he spend this movie just hanging out in New Jersey with his adorable, like, full-grown at this point ten-year-old beagle? Exactly, and uh, you know, just running some errands, doing some some lawn, you know, gardening, <laughs> hanging out in New York City, passing, working working on his car, yeah, passing exactly. by this like really expensive looking hotel where everybody walking in and out seems to have gold coins for some weird reason. Then it is very stylish, absolutely. Yeah. See, the, the problem the- with that reading, then, and the reason that it won't work within the John Wickiverse is that would make him a civilian. And there are no civilians in John Wick movies. There are only assassins (laughs) and people who hire assassins. I I, I think that I would love to talk about this for a moment because I feel like, do you feel, I feel like the movies sometimes verge on having some kind of internal logic for why like giant fights can happen on say, you know, like uh, in in the streets of Paris or say in a nightclub in Berlin and, and no one else who is there on scene seems to I react to it uh, you know the nightclub was like man they are really unfazed by they must be really yeah be like, until the end yeah yeah i mean yeah. everything um, in those nightclubs is so loud that you it, it's really hard to notice something uh so they didn't notice yeah and everybody's everybody's I, on you know. acid or molly so you know it's it, they're gonna be a little slow to respond it is true that when I said there are no civilians in uh, John Wick movies to my husband last night, I then immediately took it back because of the nightclub scene, which I had forgotten about. But yeah, it, it's sort of hard to read any of those people as human, given their their reaction to everything going on around them. They're completely blasted anyway. Uh, uh, but um, yeah, it just reminded me of like uh, something I was I, I kept thinking about Kendall's birthday party in, in succession when, when you're in every location of the it's just. Like every, it, it, like every lo- locale in, in uh, John Wick 4 is like uh, a rich asshole's birthday party. That's <laughs> kind of like, <laughs> sort of like the backdrop. But what, one thing we were, you, we were talking about uh, just a bit, a bit ago, which is the kind of another big connection, is this idea of death. I think these are both death-haunted films. I mean, we, we talked about the, the potential of, of Walker's being this sort of supernatural figure. And if he's not supernatural, he's death-haunted and he doesn't and there's really no future for him beyond achieving this 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 quest that he feels he needs to achieve there's no you know there's nothing he's going to do with the money he's not interested in the money or he fades into if he fades into the darkness it, 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 rather than rather than actually going out and getting the money when it, once it's once it's presumably there and then with with um with John Wick I think we've been on this mission for four films now and that finally comes to an end where he's just where he's um you know, made his way through this gauntlet. He's you know achieved his freedom, and that freedom is is death, and uh, and he can join his his uh, his wife and his dog. So uh, so th- th- those are, that's kind of a, I think a pretty strong you know binding force with these two movies. I can definitely see that. I mean, if you if you take Lee Marvin's fade back into the darkness at the end of Point Blank as him 
you know, his spirit rejoining his body lying in a cell somewhere or, you know, just the the ghost fading out. It does have a nice little uh, parallel. And uh, yeah, these these movies both kind of end with a like, let's let's finally let this go, like a, a, a sense of resolution, basically from these two men having killed their way to the top. There's just no one left to kill. All you can do is die at that point. I think a thing that's maybe more of a line between them, though, is that most of the people in John Wick 4 that rise beyond the level of Mook are pretty philosophical about the place that they've they've placed themselves in. Like, they have signed on for friendship with John Wick, and they know that means the destruction of everything they've built and their own death. Or... They've signed on to be part of this organization, and they know that means they may be called on to kill friends or, you know, suffer the consequences, like lose their their beloved families. There's just a lot of sort of a philosophical reckoning with death in the John Wick movies. And in I think in this one, more than any of the others, there's a sense that most of the major players don't necessarily want to kill or die, but they accept that this is the life that they signed on for and, and the contract that they signed. Whereas most of the people in uh, in Point Blank just seem exasperated and bewildered by this guy that's breaking all the rules. Pretty much what they signed on for was, uh, you know, retreats at a uh, a cozy mountain villa with a, a swimming pool that runs through the entire place. And they do not understand why they're having to deal with this like belligerent yelling guy instead. Which is that part is a one of one of several touches that uh, Soderbergh borrowed from for the Limey, another show, we've, another film we've covered on this show. We're doing a, we've done a lot of uh, revenge show movies on this uh, on this podcast, haven't we? Well, there are a lot of revenge movies out there. Yeah, it's one of it's one of Genevieve's least favorite genres, <laughs> and one of my favorites because I like so I like uh, I like a, I like a lot of violence. My beloved violence. I'm not big on it myself, just because they tend to be kind of samey. And one of the things that at least enlivens both of these movies is that they try to mix it up, you know, by yeah. creating different kinds of worlds and different kinds of of means of storytelling. I mean, we and we just we try not to pick. Yeah, bad at least with the classic <laughs> films at least we're, we're trying to find uh you know films of, of value so we have that going for us as well but i mean there is something kind of like this crudely satisfying about you know i mean it's a genre you know it's a genre film and if it's well executed it can be very simple and satisfying and of course neither one of these films is is simple uh and uh they're satisfying in different ways in both of these movies there is a sense that the uh, massive criminal organization that these main characters get entangled with, that not only is there kind of no way away from them, but also no one seems to be really in charge of them. You know, it's something that really gets hammered in in John Wick 4, that no matter what you do, you cannot kill like a final boss and then be done with the table, high table, right? Like that everyone can be replaced and that maybe... Everyone in this situation is like pretty unhappy in some way, but like every there's no way out, you know, like that everyone has agreed to this, uh, this organization and that like there's, there's no, there's no fixing it. Um, there's no repairing the system. It, it can only be as it is. But that was something that I found really interesting in, in the fourth movie is just the sense that, um, you cannot, kill enough people that you can get out that way because the organization is so big and and so able to just fill no no particular cog is irreplaceable but yeah it, it reminded me a bit of of the organization in point blank in that uh in point blank you know yeah you can never seem to reach the guy who can actually do things there's no one in charge. Are you suggesting Everyone. perhaps that you can climb to the top of the stairs, but once you get there, you're just going to fall right back to the bottom and <laughs> do it all over again? No, and then you got to get back up there. Maybe sometimes also you get the next shot of falling down more stairs. Oh, that, after that, 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 that stuff is great. Uh, it, like chef's and, and kiss. Of course, of course, reminded me of that insane, what was it, TikTok talking about, uh, talking about the myth of Sisyphus. Yeah. And yes. then, then I saw another meme that said, uh, that, uh, and someone say, saying, Sisyphus has that dog in him. <laughs> I just love that. Rise so and grind. Oh my God. So cool. All right. Before we get too deep into TikTok lore and uh, leave these two films behind, I, I got to call out the fact that these are also just both movies about people that are really, really crappy to their underlings. Like, I have been just 
really, really conscious, I think, since Blade of the degree to which uh, you can you can tell a decent classy villain by whether they treat their underlings with any kind of respect whatsoever. You know, the, the person that like goes and bounty hunts your enemy and that you then shoot instead of paying off is somebody that's not going to be able around to uh to hunt down your next enemy the the person who works for you who you know brings you important intel and then you get mad and cut off their arms is just a message to everybody to not tell you the truth anymore and in both of these movies you've got uh (laughs) <laughs> You've got the car salesman that like does his absolute best and and also like shows himself uh, to be bright and aware in meetings. And his reward is that he gets sent off to be sniped. You have somebody who shows exceptional promise at like tracking down the guy that nobody can keep track of who has killed 100 million of your people already. <laughs> and your payment for him is to like diss him excessively stab him in the hand and refuse to give him his money that he's earned like just treat your underlings right people like you're you when you're on your way up in the ladder you don't know who you're going to see when you're coming back down uh so (laughs) just pay off your criminal functionaries you know it's it's just not that hard Yeah, there's very little, very little focus given to employee retention so, in these organizations. John, um, John, John Wick know, 4 is really... It's 401k a, Matt, 401k Matt. Right. It's, it's really a labor answers. story. That's what I want to... It's really a story about labor. Yeah, I think this is the, the spinoff I actually want to see uh, of John Wick is just pick any one of the dudes who just gets just shot in the head and like just show us how he got to where it to that point in his life so give give us a rich family history how how he kind of joined the organization what his relationship is with the people in charge and then he just gets popped in the head that's uh, basically a deleted scene on the first austin powers <laughs> movie if you check that out it's actually really funny where they have a whole thing it's, what, it's with, also my favorite gag in the movie black dynamite do you, do you, ever, you ever see black dynamite there's a, oh, there's, yeah. a there's a scene where he's training and the camera suddenly just focuses on one of the guys and he just keeps getting, that he keeps beating up rather than Black Dynamite. And it's just, it's so funny because it gets you that mindset of just like what happens if you're an underling in this situation. Like, oh, you're just, your target practice. You're going to get popped in the head. You're going to just, you're going to get, going to get kicked and brutalized repeatedly in training sessions. It's just, it's, those are the people I kind of want to get to know every once in a while. I refuse to co-sign this call for yet another prequel. <laughs> uh, I kind of want uh, the admin person in the John Wick universe. I need like you know the accountant or something. Give me a, uh, give me like the person who is just trying to make sense of how the gold coins work. <laughs> Why is it that one gold coin gets you like a drink? It's so hard to earn those gold coins. <laughs> one gold coin gets you gets, like worth a drink or an assassination. Worth so much money. I know. Really? Like, uh, what is the currency exchange like? It's deeply confusing. I, I couldn't, instead of hiring, giving somebody a gold coin and hiring them to go commit a murder, an entire ass murder for you, could you maybe give them a gold coin, ask them to go to the bar up the street and bring you back like five drinks? Right. Yeah, are you allowed to have civilian drinks or once you're in the slightly alternate assassin universe, you can only have assassin drinks. Well, see, they all are very philosophical about paying a life every time they they get an assassin drink because this is the life that they've signed on for. They've they've agreed to this. Also, nobody wants to be the person that takes the coin and goes and gets the five civilian drinks because nobody in this universe treats their underlings well. You like you come back with the five civilian drinks and you just get shot in the head. They're going to stab you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And probably take your gold coin back off of you. And then the the three of you are going to say, oh, no, that was justified. We, we, it's, a, it's okay to stab people and steal their money. Blah, blah, revenge, blah. Yeah. Also, like, if you're a civilian, can you even use that, that gold coin for anything? Is it like Bitcoin? Is like the exchange rate very variable? Like, you know, how useful is it? Honestly, you know, there's a lot of questions here. I, I, I think that could be addressed in an incredibly dry movie about a John Wick accountant just trying to balance an Excel spreadsheet or whatever the assassin universe version of Excel is. While we're being very silly, can I can I also while we're referencing the need for accountancy, can I just ask? I'm still very confused by this plot point in uh, point blank. Mal steals the money from the 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 money exchange and gives it to the criminal organization, 
And then later we see the criminal organization is doing that same money exchange. Did he just steal their money and give it back to them? Was it just like, hey, boss, uh, tonight somebody murdered both of our bagmen and stole $93,000 for them. Coincidentally and unrelatedly, uh, Mal Reese is here at the door with a bag of, with $93,000 in it that he owes us. Pretty much, yeah. I don't know. My husband is trying to convince me that uh, the criminal organization that Walker's trying to fight his way through just saw that whole uh, exchange at Alcatraz thing and thought it was a good idea. And they they started doing it. But the original one was a completely different gang. I don't know. That just it's it's the same helicopter. You know, it's it's hard for me to buy. It also it just seems like a lot of bother to go all the way up to Alcatraz to do this. Like, is it really not a better it is, spot? It is, it is pretty conspicuous too. It's there's, not. There's, it's not your. Let's meet in a dark alleyway. It's like let's go to this incredibly right, like the famous whole city. Is there? You know, I mean, people love looking at Alcatraz. You know, I think what's important is there's not a more cinematic spot. It looks incredible. No, you gotta, it, that's that, I mean, yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's good filmmaking there. When you just like forget it, we're not gonna. We have to think about just how this looks visually. Uh, and just dispose of all the rest. And uh, for that, I, I salute both Point Blank and uh, John Wick for. Well, you can definitely say that for, yeah, the John Wick movie is very, very locale aware. And uh, certainly having your gigantic face-off ultimate duel uh, in front of a very, very prominent Parisian church atop a hill where everybody can see it, That's that's a decision. That's a power play. But both of these movies are are very stylish. I, one of the places that I guess for me they lined up most is just the walk that Ian McShane does through, I assume that's the Louvre, to meet with the Marquis. That's just this long, long, long tracking shot of just a man walking with determination and, and purpose. We get just such a very similar shot in Point Blank of uh, Lee Marvin is just walking through a, a space with the sound of his heels echoing. And and in that case, we cut in and out of it to different things, to different flashbacks. But in both cases, just here's just a shot of a man walking with purpose. And it's pretty mesmerizing. I appreciated the humor of the Ian McShane scene as well. You know, um, like John Wick can be pretty serious as like a for as silly as as the whole scenarios can be, it can be also pretty serious with regard to um, how it treats its world. So both the stairs and that like incredibly long scene of walking through an art gallery, uh, they they were delightful to me. The John Wick movie is not unaware of humor, uh, often a very dark humor. And then there's the stair, the pratfall humor, which is a completely different order of business and still very very funny. Yeah, the the guy sitting next to me had had at the film had a, some some commentary. He was interjecting, and he said, "This is like a cartoon." I'm like, kind of. Like, I think it walks right up to that line. I, mean, I think the, the film, the series itself, is kind of that way too. Where where it is, it's aware that it's really of its own kind of ridiculousness, but it keeps just enough of a straight face to make it work. It's a balancing act and i feel like the closest it came to, to tipping over was is probably the the, the cart the you know the uh the pratfall down the stairs but man i love that so much <laughs> so good yeah if you're sitting it's... next to keith at a movie you you always want to vocalize what you're thinking oh, yes, at, I encourage at all times. That. he loves it he loves very, it. very very into interjections from those sitting uh next to me especially but uh no I, I, i'm less annoyed by it in a john wick film than other sorts of films so to, to be to be movie honest. theaters are loud now which is nice. That's true. They drown out all the all the extraneous conversation. Well, we were going to not have any more extraneous conversation on this particular topic. I, I hopefully you didn't find all of it ex- extraneous. Uh, uh, point blank, uh, it's currently available to rent through all the usual services. It's also on DVD and Blu-ray and, and has some pretty neat stuff. Like, uh, you know, I always think if you could, an audio commentary is good, but an audio commentary where Steven Soderbergh is, is helping you out, that's that, those are, those are, that's the gold standard right there. Um, the film John Wick Chapter 4 is in theaters nationwide. I tend to recommend a film or film-related item that complements this set of episodes. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put something interesting on your radar. Uh, I'm going to take this one because I really do want to talk about my one of my favorite incarnations of of Parker, uh, which is the I mentioned it before um, the comic book artist and and writer Darwin Cook. 
uh, embarked on a series of adaptations of the Richard Stark, you know, Donald Westlake Parker novels, and they are remarkable. Uh, Cook is is um, I don't if if you've seen his stuff, you'll you'll know it instantly. It's it's an illust- kind of inspired by the illustrative style of, of the 1950s or 1960s, but also um, in by animation. He kind of got one of his big you know entryways into it was working on on some of the batman animated series shows he's remarkable i i love his stuff he's he's one of my favorite artists there's there's uh i've original darwin cook uh art on my my wall unfortunately uh he died in 2016 at the too young age of, of 53 uh and only was able to do the first four parker books and the novella the man with the getaway face they're, they're all wonderful and they're from idw publishing and they have that kind of same like Economy, you know, the the economy of his art really matches the economy of Westlake's prose. It's a really great merger of of, of sensibilities, and and you know, Westlake died shortly, I believe, before the first book came out. But but the two of them were able to talk about it before, and like you got Westlake's br- bl- blessing and input on on some of this. Um, they're all, you know, I, I can't really speak highly enough of them. If, if you really want to splurge, there's this nice hardcover editions that are kind of oversized that, that compile a few of them with a lot of bonus material, including um, all, you know, artistic renditions of all the actors who have played Parker over over the years in, in the Darwin Cook style. Um, but the, the other, you know, they're also available individually, you know, at affordable prices. And I, like I said, if if you've if if you're intrigued at all by if you enjoyed Point Blank and if you enjoy uh, Westlake's writing. I really could not do better than t- to seek these out. Tasha, you're you're a comics reader. I know. Have you read any of these? I am a comics reader, but I've never read any of the uh, of the Parker books in any form. Um, and I'm definitely going to look these up because I'm certainly curious. Yeah, I need to read more of the actual novels. I've only read The Hunter. Um, which is really quite it, it is it is like you know as someone who's read you know plenty of James Elroy and such over the years it is it's scarily hard boiled like it's just a mean uh mean writing and i've read some of Westlake's uh, other books and and they're they're fun they're they has a really light touch i it really was um you know it does seem to be channeling two different sides of the same uh authorial personality with, with his writing Well, that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show, but we'll be back next week with another set of episodes. Tasha, do you want to tell us about our episodes dropping on April 4th and April 11th? Currently playing on Hulu after its Sundance debut, Rye Lane, the first feature film from English director Rain Allen Miller, stars Vivian Opara and David Johnson as, respectively, Yas and Dom, a pair of 20-somethings, who meet and unexpectedly wind up spending the day together. Over the course of a long ramble through the South London neighborhood that gives the film its title, they get to know each other and find they have a lot in common as they inch toward a romantic connection. As we were thinking of films that might have inspired Rye Lane, it only took a small leap to arrive at Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise, in which Ethan Hawke and Julia Delpy meet and fall for each other as the result of a lot of walking and talking. We look forward to taking these two parallel journeys with you in our next episodes. For now, we welcome your feedback on Point Blank and John Wick Chapter 4 and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. You can email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can you find everyone these days? Allison, we'll start with you as our, as our special guest. Uh, well, you can find my writing at Vulture. Um, find my byline there. It'll all be there. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Allison Wildor, uh, though I've been trying to be on there less for my own sake. What about your dog? Does your dog have any sort of so- social media presence? <laughs> you can find my, my dog on Instagram. Uh, it's Samo the dog, Samo, S-A-M-M-O. And, you know, his adventures are much more exciting than mine. Highly recommended. I, I love that. Love that page. How about you, Scott? Uh, well, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. I, I still... I'm a sicko. I still participate <laughs> quite heavily on <laughs> Twitter. Uh, you can find uh, my work uh, uh, chiefly at the Reveal, uh, the newsletter that uh, I write with with Keith. It's uh, the Reveal Substack.com. You can also find my work in in the New York Times, in uh, Guardian, in Vulture, and other fine publications. Tasha. I am the film and streaming editor at Polygon.com. You can find me writing about uh, film and TV and occasionally books and comic books there. I am on Twitter-ish at uh, Tasha Robinson. Keith? 
I'm a freelance writer. You can find my writing. I'm, I'm on Twitter at KFIPS3000. You can find my writing at places like uh, GQ, The Ringer, TV Guide, and Vulture. And also, as Scott mentioned, The Reveal, which is a, a newsletter that he and I write that we uh, we put a lot of, uh, we put a lot of, there's a lot of heart in that newsletter, wouldn't you say? A lot of heart? I think so. Yeah. So the, Blood, the Reveal. Sweat. That sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's at the reveal.substack.com. Our absent co host, Genevieve Kosky, can be found on Twitter occasionally at, at Genevieve Kosky, and she is the senior TV editor at Vulture. Um, and as for the podcast as a whole, you can stay updated on the Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at, at Next Picture Pod. You can get bonus content at Open Discussion at patreon.com slash Next Picture Show. And as always, we appreciate your rating and reviews on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to the show. Thanks to Dan the Baked Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. <laughs>